don't have to like everything we say. You don't have to listen to us. I got you. I hear you and I got you. I think what we need to do, because I already did it, was make a list. We're going to go over a list of steps to perform when evaluating these sources. I talked to you about steps for the format. I talked about facts. I talked about truth. And in there, we dabbled around the idea of how we're evaluating these sources. But I actually have a list for you. Basically, this is a way to do critical thinking exercise on this and how to look at these sources and evaluate them along with these other steps to determine how we're going to look at it, how we're going to find consistency, how we're going to determine the source versus the product versus the company they work for. And if you want this list, you just reach out to me in the show notes below, or you can at me on Facebook or Twitter at Gray Mind Concepts, and I will send you the list. And I'll even, if I remember, I'll even post it probably on Facebook. It's a little too long for Twitter. But this is a pretty good list going over some critical length exercises for evaluating sources when we're reading the news, but actually this is universal to anything written and even verbal. So critical steps to evaluate a source. That's what we're going to talk about right here in Grayman, hiding in plain sight. Well, I hope you're all having as fun doing this process as I would be watching you do it in a classroom because I, I lose that experience when I do shows like this. I don't get to watch you do it. But anyway, let's talk about evaluating sources. This is uh, crucial to ensure things like accuracy, credibility, and reliability of the information you're consuming as well as the source providing said information. I've said before when we do this in the intel world, we look for truthfulness and accuracy. I'm not going to use that phrase now. We're going to stick with accuracy. We've discussed truthfulness. I don't want to get into the idea of subjective, objective, and how that works on the intel side. I think it's already confusing enough. So some key things we want to look at. First thing is authorship and expertise. I've talked a little bit about this before. Who is the creator or the author? And there's a difference to me. I think when I think news and what we would call corporate or mass media, I think author, whereas a blogger, I think creator. I don't think one's necessarily derogatory or more professional. It's just in my mind, however you want to define those, but who are they? Are they an expert in the field or subject matter? Something to understand about that. If you look at like investigative journalists, and I also recently talked about this for spy novelists, a lot of them are trained to do that job. Like one guy's a book writer. The other person is an investigative journalist. That's what they do. They have no experience starting out, but through a lot of research, study, and curiosity, however it comes about, they focus in a particular area. They can actually be somewhat of a subject matter expert and have a pretty strong understanding of things based on 
their research over time for what they're doing. Some of them come into it, especially novelists, with the expertise already. Like if you look at Jack Carr, he writes some novels people like. They made a movie out of one of them. I think they're making more. He's a former Navy SEAL. He writes a lot about that kind of stuff. He's talked a lot about having to learn about writing and storytelling, and that was all new to him. But as far as the content and making that all work, like that was his thing. He was already there. Whereas other people like Bowden, for example, and there's a few other writers, they interview people, talk to people from real world things and do books on them, storytelling, documentary type books, and learn things about it from there. There's things they will never have as expertise in their areas, but there's things they can't acquire. I point that out to say, don't just go, oh, journalists, they can't possibly know about it. They very well could. See what other things they've written about. How, how often have they covered this subject or something related to it? They can pick up things and become so much of an expert. And even if they're not truly an expert, there's levels of things. Like you think, you know, professional, the way I look at it is like you have like your beginner, like I'm, I'm interested in this. Then you have a novice. I've been working on it for a while. You know, a novice is also what I call a hobbyist uh, who hasn't really gone anywhere with it, but there's something they enjoy doing. And then you have like an amateur. They're pretty good. People look at them. They probably can teach you a few things, but they're definitely not going to make a business out of this anytime yet. You know, they're not teaching people like at universities, you know, whatever the equivalent would be for that subject. Then you have experts or what I'd call a subject matter expert. They, subject matter expert is specific to that thing where I think of a regular expert as the broad range of a field. This is just how I look at it. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. You got to figure it out in your head. And then professionals to me are, are above that. The true practitioners, the people that might be the equivalent of or hold, say, doctorates or similar degrees, depending on the field and of what it is. Not to distinguish that, though, from experience, because some people can be at that level with experience, not have education, depending on what the subject is, but that's getting a little too much for this. Anyway, the point is they can learn some of that stuff. We want to look for credentials and qualifications and any relevant experience, as I just explained. What, where are they from? You can go so far as if you're really reading a lot of stuff from a specific person is look deeper in those credentials and qualifications, where they're from, how the stuff's taught there. If it's, you say, a university or a training place, how, how did they do it 10 years ago when the person went? What can you learn about the instructors there? Right, because there's something to be said about who's training this person. Like I talked before with training stuff, like I think I used Mozart, which is a bad example because he was basically <laughs> naturally gifted, I guess. But the idea was, it was something along the lines of, Sure, you could be trained by Mozart, but wouldn't you rather be trained by the guy that trained Mozart? So I should have used a different musician, but anyway, that's the point. Another thing to look at, of course, is our publication source. Where was it published? Now, you already know that because you're looking at it, but you have an idea. If it's a website or a blog or a known publication that was formerly printed or is printed now, but there's things that have a higher degree of accepted accuracy, like peer-reviewed journals. Those are our found a lot in sciences, although they are in other places, but where they have equivalent or give or take equivalency of peers in that field who review writings and look at the things for their accuracy and credibility. You know, you have established news outlets, your CNNs of the world, many other organizations like that. And you also have academic institutions and who's coming from there. While those are generally considered more trustworthy, it doesn't mean that that document is good. The reason they're more trustworthy is they've been around longer. They have access to more research. They've been doing this a long time. It depends on what they're writing about, right? The subject, who's writing it, 
how they're writing it. It still always comes down to the individual document. We do not judge the whole based on the document, and we don't judge the document based on a whole. But we want to recognize these places as being more trustworthy because even if you think they're not, what's more trustworthy than that? Because I can tell you something that aren't trustworthy. Garbage sites with a bunch of links, places that just have, look like, say, reviews of a product, but all it is is copied and pasted from somewhere else with links to Amazon so that you'll buy it and they can make money. I think those are least trustworthy. Poorly written blogs with bad grammar and tons of links and pop-ups. Those are the things I think are less trustworthy than this. But we have to be cautious with these self-published sources and anonymous sources because a lot of time, how we can identify them I mean, one, being anonymous, but two, even when they're self-published, like say a blog, they might lack proper attribution. They're not citing things. They're not saying where they got this. They're saying things that sound good. Hell, they might be saying things that you've researched and you're like, man, these guys are, this is right. This is accurate. Great. But is there anything in there supporting that? If they don't meet any criteria or understanding for being an expert, you know it's right, but it sounds like stuff you've heard before that's right or close to right. They're not citing anything. Clearly, there's nothing about them that says they're an expert or that they created this on their own. They probably just got lucky or, or did pretty well parroting some stuff and putting it together to sound like an expert, but they're really not. And it's actually considered bad writing. So what we're looking at is the information's good, but the source is probably bad in this situation. Now, we've talked about biases and objectivity, of course, quite a bit. One thing we're going to look for, though, I've mentioned political, but also... Is there a commercial or ideological agenda? For a commercial agenda, we're looking for people wanting to sell you stuff, <laughs> you know, and I ideology. That's very common in some writings. Like I was reading some stuff translated today from the Houthis, um, not the Houthis, from Hamas. And there's an ideological agenda there. Now, it's a given that it's probably going to be there, and it's expected, and it would be appropriate for the statements they're making that they're trying to use to justify uh, different things, whether they justified or not. Not to take a position on that, I'm just saying that's something that's always going to have, say, an ideological, it's appropriate there. Is it appropriate in the thing you're looking at? Is the commercial thing appropriate? Is the political thing appropriate? And we want a balanced view when we're looking at this. So for objectivity, you know, people write these papers I just talked about, like, it sounds pretty good, there's nothing really there. And, and that's okay. Like, you have this paper, and it's... It's balanced and it's, it's not balanced. It just, it takes side A. We'll say there's two sides. So it takes side A, writes about side A. Sounds pretty good. You know, you like it or you don't. A better paper though would have, here's a little bit about side A and here's a little bit about side B. They both sound pretty good and they're opposing. So that, that sounds like it's more balanced. What's even better is if they only picked one side and gave an evidence-based argument. We talked about evidence, like a factually-based argument, not a feeling-based. So an objective, not a subjective. A lot of papers are like that and are one-sided, and sure, they miss things or leave things out, but that is at least well-sourced, you know, and it's uh, well-written. But to be truly balanced, what if it had a pro and a negative side, both had strong evidence-based arguments, that it sounded convincing on the one side, and then you went to the other, it's like, this sounds convincing too, almost to the point where you wonder where the reader's belief is, and you're kind of questioning it. People see that all the time, and they'll write those off, I'm like, no, those are usually the best papers, because if they're using good, credible, accurate information, but they're preventing both sides and you're not sure where the reader stands, that should tell you how much you're being fed stuff from people that's their point of view that you're being told to think that you're just kind of missing. You know, that's why I say news isn't really news. Like, if you can tell the opinion of the author, I wouldn't call it news. 
So something like this is, is great. If you can't tell their opinion and it sounds good and it's accurate on both sides and they're providing pros and cons of, of something, that it's like reading a review for a product you want to buy that you go, that's a well-written review. It gives me things to think about. An article of the same manner would be considered well-written and something to look for in that source and find out, does that person do more work like this? When we're looking at accuracy and fact-checking, we want to make sure it aligns with reputable sources. So we're trying to determine this source's credibility. Are they reputable? But what sources are they using? Because they should be using sources. And we kind of have to evaluate those to some degree as best we can. I mean, if you're looking at a peer-reviewed journal on something in a science that you are not a scientist of, you know, and you took a chemistry class in high school and you're reading this stuff that's interesting, there's a whole lot of faith you have to put in the expertise of them if you don't understand the field until you learn more about it. Whereas other things you can evaluate a little more in depth on that person who's providing the information that's the source of the person you're trying to evaluate as a source. We wanna cross-reference that information for consistency. And by cross-referencing here, what we're looking for is, are they writing this thing I'm reading and the source they're providing, I'm gonna look at as reputable, does it cross-reference correctly? Like, is it exaggerated? Is it misleading? Is it factual? Is it one of those situations where I said they put a link in, you find out it's an article, and if you go through the format process of the article and really look at the facts and truths really, really fast, and you go, yeah, that one statement cherry-picked out of there looked like it's supported, but it actually doesn't. It's actually not cross-referenced correctly. Then we know that's not an accurate um, reference, and you've, that's a proper way to fact-check in that example. The other thing, too, is we're looking at timeliness. We have to consider when the information was published. When I talked about speaking with sources and assets or detainees when we'd interrogate, we'd ask them, you know, how do you know this to be true? And part of it was how they found the information out, who told them, but when. And the when could be a long time ago, and I've discussed how it depends on who they are when they got into information. You know, being old doesn't make it out of date. Being a week ago doesn't make it in date. There's stuff to look at there. But would it be considered up to date? Okay, the current date of the information is not what makes it up-to-date. There's up-to-date information that's decades old, and there's up-to-date information that's literally minutes old, depending on what it is and where you get it and what the field is. And what we're trying to find out, has newer information emerged since then? And if it has, why haven't they written about it? Quite often is a very explainable reason why that, you know, that's not something they're covering. But this new information that's emerged, how much does it change? What they've said is it change one sentence doesn't change the entire basis of this content that we're reading and that's part of what we discover when we do this cross-referencing on our own when i mentioned truth and fact and sources and looking up other stuff and we finding more information on a thing we're chasing down we're starting to cross-reference that and find out well, what new information is out there is it reasonable if there was information out there that opposes what they said that was available at the time they wrote it is it reasonable they would have missed it because who are they if they're this blogger that does pretty good most of the time but they're not an expert in this field that's pretty reasonable they might have missed it if we haven't seen any history of well-researched information. And then this other person over here always has well-researched, put-together information. They're like a pro at it. You know, it seems like they're a pro, but they're not an expert. It's like on their own, they've learned to be an expert. And then you're like, oh, they, well, this information was available and it completely kills this entire argument. Why didn't they use it? So you can find those sometimes. The other thing is transparency. So... What you want is your source to be transparent about things like its methodology or its methods for discovering information, writing, create, whatever it is, the methodology beyond whatever it is they're doing. They should be transparent about their sources. So a lack of sources clearly is no transparency and, and how they research. 
It adds to their credibility. Telling you that there's a method, telling you that there's a model, telling you that there's a research process, telling you that there are sources and saying nothing else is not transparency. That's like telling you something exists. That, that's not being transparent. Telling you what it is, showing it to you, explaining it to you, providing you pictures, walking you through it. Anything to make it as understandable and usable used by possible is, is more of what transparency really is. Another thing we're looking for is quality writing. And I mentioned this a little bit, but to the best of your ability, because we all have different abilities when it comes to writing, does this seem or is it well-structured? Is it, is it clear in its presentation for the type of writing or, or um, product that it is? News article writing and a peer-reviewed journal writing are completely different. Content for the same story can be so much more different and in-depth in certain areas for each one. Is it grammatically correct, the best we know? Things like how clear it is, the structure and the grammar, is indicative of a professional and credible source. Indicative. That doesn't mean guaranteed. Most of your professional and credible sources, which are two different things, will have those. Part of the professionalism is like you take a mass media news agency and the ways in which they present the information and write it typically is called a professional manner. Doesn't mean the source is credible though. The other thing is you can have a source that's credible, a blogger, but they can't write professionally. So you can have one without the other. You don't need them both. But you can't assume that good grammar and clear writing and a good structure makes it professional and or credible. You might just have a person that can do that, but they're not an expert in the field and they're just kind of having all these faults in there that we've covered in, in the previous three episodes. The other thing too is you can have people that just can't write. Like I've seen, there's so many people that wrote like prepping books and I used to read reviews on them and there were so many people out there, even guys that were well-known people writing books saying like, they basically like, this book's got some solid information but this dude needs an editor because the grammar's bad, the writing's bad, so many misspellings. So you can have that where it's good stuff, it's just put together poorly. Something to look to is that your domains and URLs on websites when you're going to them. Some are fake and used to mimic real organizations out there. It's very common to, just like we talked about with the scams on other episodes. You really want to be careful of this when you're looking at overseas news organizations, which you should be utilizing with anything to see what's going on over there. How does that people see it? Or how does that portion of the world see us for our thing? It's a lot easier to fall prey to the fake sites for anything overseas and it's also easier to fall prey to think that something's from a country and organization it can't be trusted or that it's always state sponsored or state sponsored makes it bad it still can be usable so you want to make sure that those are legit the other thing too is are hoaxes and misinformation we've talked about misinformation but you can use fact checking websites of course those are somewhat questionable sometimes and obviously fact checking on facebook they've testified in congress is just opinion Really, to check for hoaxes and misinformation is going to come through this entire process if you follow. You're going to verify information or debunk it. You're going to be like, okay, this is good, this is bad. You're going to see things like facts and go, like I use the number of statistics facts. We reached over here, the number is whatever, and then over here, the number is whatever. They're competing facts, but that doesn't make them wrong. Where did they get the information? You find that through the process and you go, actually, I can verify them both. They're just different for these reasons, and I understand that now. Whereas in some situations, maybe debunk both. The other thing we're looking at is reputation and recognition of the source. So in their field for what they do and whether or not they're experts or their level of understanding, how do other people refer to them or cite them? 
Now, there's certain givens there. A competing side, like News Agency is a clear one. In this country, they're pretty much politically affiliated. So the opposing side is going to typically say bad things. Their own side is going to typically say good things unless it's a competing company. But what about other people saying and why? Like it's, I don't think interesting is the word, but one thing that always gets my attention is you get a politician. This has happened with politicians or somebody that works in the White House. And they credit somebody, the opposing political point of view that, or they think, I guess we'd say is opposing political because they work for another company, you know, like a Democrat in the White House complimenting Fox or a Republican in the White House complimenting CNN. It's rare, but it happens. It always gets my attention. But how are other people referring to them and why? The other thing too, is we talked about citing sources. Who's citing them as a source? When you look up that stuff or you look up that information or let's say you look up the person in the article or you search a keyword or phrase or the headline and you throw it on Google, sometimes you pull up information and you go, well, this article doesn't say much about it. And you go down and you find one sentence re referencing it with a link that brings you back to the article. You're like, oh, this article, this author has cited my source that I'm trying to evaluate. How are they citing it? How are they doing? You might find another possible source. This is one of the way, I, kind of an example of how we can find sources. I mean, this works for you. I'm, I'm cross-referencing into the intel world. But the reputation recognition thing isn't just established by you. It's by looking at other people, no matter what they think of them and how they speak about these people. You know, if you think about politicians when they get old and die and presidents and stuff, usually the key leaders from both sides come out and thank them for their contributions to the country and their service. And it's important that they do that. I think some of it's political, but I think they really believe that. Like a lot of them... Some of them come out and said, I don't agree with this guy's politics at all, but man, he's dedicated to the country. You know, that says a lot about the reputation of that individual. Another thing we got to look at is the op audience and purpose of this document, this thing we're reading. Who's the intended audience and what's the purpose of it? So typically it comes down to four things. Information, entertainment, persuasion, or to sell a product. Now, one of them is usually the main thing you can see quite often more than one. So, for example, let's say you go to look up a review site. I mentioned before you find one, you're looking at generators. I was looking at those earlier. You find all these sites with all these generators. They kind of come up in the keyword search, but they're not really what I'm looking for. Clearly, bad cut and paste examples, like they're trying to inform, but what they're really trying to do is get me to click on the links to, to buy them or get them you know, credit for the next 24 hours on Amazon. So their actual true purpose is to sell a product masquerading as information. Some of them really are doing good information stuff. Like one of the places I review equipment is called Outdoor Gear Lab, and they do really well at giving informative reviews. And they, at the end, they do these little charts on their products and give them stars and that you've learned and explained very well. But they do have links as a secondary where they can get uh, kudos or you know make a little money, a little percentage off selling the product. Another thing is the news typically isn't trying to sell anything except for maybe sell you on the idea to only come to them. And entertainment isn't really their thing. They're there for information. But there's, and, and there's times when they're really there for persuasion. What we're looking for, as I mentioned before, in the information, are they trying to persuade? I mentioned in the one article, are they, given this information, I went over the traffic stop with a cop, and then are they trying to persuade you to this political idea at the end? And then that when I see that, it discredits the entire doesn't necessarily discredit the document, but it discredits a lot for me in that situation, the source, the person who wrote it. As like, this really was you doing a persuasion thing, masquerading the whole time as trying to provide information. 
but sometimes they're just one or the other. A lot of things that like when they're selling you stuff for persuasion and a product or most anything pop culture's main goal is entertainment with a little bit of information or might seem like information because it has actual facts in it, but its main purpose is entertainment. I mean, if you look at what was the magazine called? Entertainment Weekly. I've looked at that. Its sole goal is entertainment. There's information in there, but their entire goal is entertainment with a little bit of selling. Another thing too is we're looking with, really this is the last thing I have on the list, is consistency with common knowledge. We're trying to evaluate whether the information aligns with what your current understanding of a topic and common knowledge is. And you have to be able to fairly evaluate your level of knowledge. And wherever you're at with that, you need to cut that back probably by 25% at a minimum. We all, to some degree, have a little overconfidence in our ability in things, especially our knowledge. Much of the time, it's just because of how much we've learned and how you know, we feel good about it. We, we overestimate it, whereas some, it's an ego thing, and that's where we're talking Dunning-Kruger, like, I'm an expert. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> so 25%, and you're probably getting close to the neighborhood of where you're really at. And the other thing, too, is through all this critical skills or critical thinking skills we're looking at here in the process that we've gone through for evaluating this, we're picking up and learning along the way other information that's out there that we're cross-referencing, what's common knowledge out there that gives us a better idea on how to look with the consistency of specifically that. This critically evaluating sources methods here can help you make the more informed decisions that we talked about. It can help you really look at these sources and the information so you can choose, you can make the conscious choice of where you're gonna trust, where you're gonna incorporate, where you're gonna look in the future, what level of trust you can apply to this versus this. And it can change your entire understanding. Just remember that things that are considered reputable or things that you like are going to have errors. They're going to have a lot of them because they all do. Don't ignore those. Don't gloss over them and write them off, excusing them because you like it and highlighting them when you don't like it. This is kind of like saying a healthy dose of skepticism, especially for the stuff that you favor or agree with, you know, to be true, however you're defining that, you still want to have skepticism because at a minimum things change. There's new information out there. They can't know everything. And <laughs> I haven't done it in a long time, but I, I mean, how many, gosh, how many, was it tens of millions of, what is it? Tens of millions of YouTube. You should look up how many YouTube channels there are, but look how, how many hours, how many hours are uploaded like every day and break that down to like the minute. It's insane. That's just YouTube. The amount of information out there, even, even if 1% of it was solid, is so massive. That's why you need the skepticism. It's not always going to be right or complete. There's always more information and there's always more to the story. I do hope this helps you. Again, show notes. You can send me the voice message. You can email me. You can reach out to Gray Man Concepts on Facebook or Twitter. I will send you this list and I will... I think I'll throw it up on Facebook when I'm done here. So thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more shows right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight.